Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. I'm joined today by two political science professors here on the Wake Forest campus, Provost Rogan Kirsch and Professor Sarah Dayhill-Brown. Provost, Professor, thanks for coming on. Thrilled to be here. Thanks for having us. I asked you two here today to discuss a topic that seems to not only have shaped a lot of both your own work, but seems to be getting a lot more uh, attention in the media today uh, in topics education. But before we get into that, I'd like to get our unfamiliar listeners more acquainted with the both of you. Mm -hmm. So let's first start with you, Professor. Uh, Would you mind sort of giving us a bit about your background and sort of how you arrived here at Wake Forest? As I understand it, you grew up in Salt Lake City. I grew up in Salt Lake. Um, I attended public schools, so I'm a product of the public schools um, from second grade until about 12th. I attended Catholic school very briefly, but in the second grade, I sort of developed um, an irrational fear of nuns and begged my parents to um, allow me to transfer to um, the public schools where a couple of my friends had moved. And given that it saved them a few thousand dollars a year, they acquiesced. (laughs) Um, After that, I attended school in Texas at a university a lot like Wake Forest, uh, right down to the sort of 1960s era red brick um, (laughs) and buildings that are well-coordinated, small classrooms um, with really attentive professors. Um, And then there I majored in political science and sociology and environmental studies, so I relate to um, Wake students and their kind of desire to focus on a lot of different subjects and topics. Mm -hmm. Um, But my senior year of school, I became convinced that I wanted to spend a few years at least doing some kind of work before I went back to graduate school. And I wanted it to be some sort of um, public good. I wanted to do something for the public good. So you were definitely convinced graduate school when you were uh, in undergrad? I was confident I wanted to go to graduate school. My grandfather was a university professor at Marshall. Um, Hmm. Both my parents have master's degrees. My father an MBA, my mother um, a master's in marketing, although she ended up becoming a school teacher after earning that degree. Um, So I knew that I wanted to go to graduate school, but I wanted to take some time out and do some work. And so I explored a lot of options, explored the Peace Corps, I explored um, teaching English abroad, uh, and I ended up landing on Teach for America, which in 2004 was not sort of quite as well known um, or as controversial, I think, as it is now. Um, I'd never heard of Teach for America until February of my senior year of college. Um, I applied, I made it through the um, admissions process, only part of which I remember, um, because I had pneumonia and 103 degree fever, and um, so I was a little delusional during the interview (laughs) itself. Uh, But they placed me in rural Texas, uh, right on the Texas-Mexico border. Mm. The middle school where I taught was actually a fort during the Mexican-American War. Really? Uh, Yeah. That was interesting. So it was located right on the river. So when I said I taught on the border, I taught on the The actual actual physical border between the United States and Mexico. And that campus had a middle school, an elementary school, the school district's surplus warehouse, um, and the central offices, um, all sorts of kind of overflow uh, uh, buildings um, because the school was kind of over-enrolled. 
um, and I worked with middle school students uh, in special education, mm -hmm. um, teaching reading um, for two years while I was there. Um, at the end of that time, I moved to Wisconsin to start graduate school, and I thought I would keep, I would go back to studying international politics. That was my plan. Um, but once there, you know, I really couldn't stop thinking about my students or about what I had learned about educational politics and policy. Um, and I happened to find a really great mentor in uh, John Witte, um, mm -hmm. who's sort of a pioneer in the study of school vouchers, in particular in Milwaukee. Um, and he graciously kind of took me under his wing, uh, shepherded me through my PhD program. Um, and then at the end of that time, I uh, happened to see this job announcement for Wake Forest University, and I thought, that seems like it might be a good fit for me, and I ended up here. And how long have you been here for? Um, since the fall of 2012. So actually, Provost Kirsch and I started here, I think, right around the same time. Oh. We were in the new faculty <coughs> orientation together. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Yes. Very nice. Thanks for sharing that with us. And now let's talk about your background, Provost. As a student of yours, actually, I recall you saying you had a list of places that you sort of called home during your youth, if I remember correctly. That's right. I was born in Greenwich Village in New York City, in Manhattan. And when I was four, we moved to a Greek island for a couple of years, which sounds amazing to <laughs> folks now. But in the 70s, that's sort of how people rolled, I think, um, trying things out and um, pack up the family and move away for a couple of years. Uh, came back to the city for a while, then moved to the mountains of North Carolina up near Asheville, a little town called Brevard, which is kind of all that now, but was um, a very uh, sort of dusty uh, burg back then. Not many people, frankly, who moved into Transylvania County from New York City. So we were a little bit uh, freaks of nature um, in that town. And in fact, the local paper ran a big story about the Yankees invading um, tongue-in-cheek kind of piece. So. Um, and this is pre-internet era, so really, uh, in a way that seems strange today, there was much less information about the outside world, and in a relatively quick time, I became a kid of the mountains, um, much more provincial, whatever New York worldliness or sophistication or veneer or anything of that sort I had wore off pretty quickly, and by the time I um, came to governor's school, I was lucky enough to do here in Winston-Salem as a high school, somewhere after my junior rising senior year, I had very little sense of what higher education was like. Neither of my parents, unlike my co-conspirator here, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Dale Brown, neither of my parents had gone to college. In fact, no one in my family had gone to college. I was the oldest of six siblings and um, traced my parents, both of their generations back, and they all had gone to work very young. Um, so just wasn't a big model. And the, way, the governor's school then as now, I'm happy to say, brings the governor's school west um, cohort onto the Wake Forest campus for a um, couple talks and the like, and just to see it. I just thought this is the most jewel-like, extraordinary place I've ever been. I very vividly remember my first view of Wake coming on a little shuttle bus and then, or a big bus, and then of the quad. And so that that felt like home, and I was lucky enough to um, get the financial support I would have needed to come here. So, and what age was this when you first came to Wake? I was in high school, just finished my junior year, so I would have been 15. So you have a long history here, it seems. I guess I do. <laughs> I guess I do. And sort of, you came here, as a, most people are familiar, uh, for undergrad, and sort of take us through that and your, uh, your schooling afterwards. Sure. I came in intending to study chemistry and become a chemical engineer, uh, again, without a lot of models in my family for professional work. I um, took an aptitude test that they used to give to sixth or seventh graders in places like Brevard and 
it spat out after I answered a bunch of questions that I should be a chemical engineer. I thought, right, that's what I'll do. Really, that's, that's sort of how I decided. And I went to a couple summers, um, summer engineering camp at NC State. For all you listeners, there is nothing more exciting than summer engineering camp, let me tell you. <laughs> um, and so it was, in fact, I thought I would go to state. I think it's probably, probably a recruiting thing for them, but um, got, again, the financial assistance that my family couldn't have provided and came to Wake. And so started as a chem major and a physics major um, jointly and migrated over time towards politics and English. Uh, long story there, but that's kind of where I wound up. And um, all I really knew is I wanted to go back to Washington. I had a, another wonderful fortune experience as a high school senior of going to DC for a program called the US Senate Youth Program. They picked two kids from every state and um, I just was so dazzled by DC. I really wanted to get back there and did internships across some of my time at Wake and in DC. And, in politics more generally. And so headed to DC, wasn't quite sure what to do, bounced around to some different jobs, um, got to see different aspects of Washington reporting, working as a lobbyist, um, working in a think tank, working with a national philanthropic organization called the Council on Foundations. So without at all planning or being aware of it, worked on the Hill, I really got a feel for most of the major um, aspects of government, except for the Supreme Court that are based in DC. And, just was absolutely smitten with it. Just as I'd had no real sense of college, I had no real sense of graduate school, but um, looked around and the folks that I admired most in Washington were committee staff directors on, in the Senate. They were people who, um, you know, quietly, no, no name you'd ever recognize, but ran the budget committee or the finance committee or the armed services committee. And a number of them either had PhDs or were what we call EBD. They'd been to grad school to pursue a PhD, never finished their dissertation, but then the coursework and so on. Three of them in particular who were big mentors or influences on me. I thought, I need to go to get a PhD so I can come back and be a staff director like them. I thought you got a PhD in two years. <laughs> and it really wasn't until I got to Yale for grad school that I sort of figured out that it took seven years or eight years or 22 years. And really felt just about depressed by that. But figured it out, worked my way through. I was on a fellowship in grad school again, very fortunate. I couldn't afford it otherwise. And um, the fellowship meant you didn't get in the classroom for your first three years, you just took classes. And I kept toggling between Yale and DC, I'd go back, I took a semester off to go um, follow a tax bill um, for this lobbying firm around DC and you know, give information about it and stayed deeply involved in what felt like the exhilarating work of policy making, watching it in action, helping in a tiny distant way to even shape it. Um, all my intention was still to come back to Washington. And then I finally got in the classroom, not till my fourth year of graduate school, but then I felt like, okay, this is actually home. So my, um, you know, the love affair that Sarah describes with higher ed and education more generally, um, certainly I had, but didn't imagine as a professional trajectory until about 10 minutes into TAing the first class I helped teach. Um, and so from there just, you know, was, was and remained um, a faculty member first and foremost. Very cool. And both of you, you very, seems like both of you grew up very long with this desire to, or at least gravitated towards education in some sort of way. And in having so many sort of affinities towards different areas in education, how do you, or where do you really sort of find yourself sort of actively going towards? In other words, sort of what research <laughs> are you working on right now? And could you give us a bit of insight into uh, what it pertains? Uh, let's start with you, Professor. Sure. Um, 
I think so both of us study public policy and I think one of the things that is um, really wonderful about public policy is that it gives you an opportunity to tap into all sorts of subjects. So for people who like learning, you have an excuse to do a little bit of reading on the most recent research in chemistry or physics if that interests you. Um, or if it's in education, right, and you're thinking about the process of learning, how does learning unfold, right? So what does the social psychological research tell us um, about the process of learning math, right? Or the effect of stereotypes um, in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you're thinking about um, policy and education, right, one thing that I think is nice to recognize is that it gives us a an opportunity to kind of tap into all of those different mm -hmm. subjects from time to time. Um, my own research uh, evolved kind of over the course of graduate school, but it is really connected to the experiences that I had when I was a middle school teacher. Um, I would say the idea that kind of holds my work together, um, because some of it focuses on psychology and some of it focuses on political dynamics. But I would say the idea that kind of holds it together um, is the questions about the difference between a policy as it's articulated, right, and what actually happens mm. when it gets implemented. Mm. Right? Sort of the idea of the difference between the ideal and the actual. And so you can see that in a lot of different spaces, right? Congress passes the No Child Left Behind Act, right? Imagining one particular thing, the states and the school districts receive the No Child Left Behind Act and adapt it or come up with ways to implement it but subvert, right, its original intent. And that's a story that plays out over and over and over again. Um, and you can draw, I think, a pretty straight line between that and even right, some of the uh, big research findings that we get excited about right, in education, where we think this is going to close the achievement gap, this is going to increase mathematic, uh, mathematics achievement, right, or increase high school graduation rates. And you find one study that has this really stunning effect, and then you scale that up, and you bring that to other places, and the effect isn't as big as it was, or it completely goes away. Right? Um, so we see kind of time and time again in education, folks getting really excited about sort of the big fix, the big change, the next big policy, um, and then often getting right, disappointed in the results of that. So I'm interested in that process and kind of how it plays out. And do you have any uh, projects in the pipeline or any upcoming publications coming out? Yeah, um, so I'm working with the um, Harvard Education Press on a, a book in particular about um, the way that policies change from the federal level to the state level and how the differences in the way that states set up their school system can explain some of that variation. Right? So when you think about K-12 school policy in particular, right, there's no sort of constitutional provision at the federal level um, that provides, right? for schooling. All of those rights, all of those systems are, are rooted in state constitutional provisions. And so those systems have grown up in very different ways, right? Um, you have, you know, a thousand school districts in California and Texas, I think something like seven or 800 in New York. 
um, and you have 40 in the state of Utah, right, where I grew up. So the complexity and the scale of the systems are different. Right? You also have different political cultures in the states around what the expectation is for schools, right? Um, whether it's something that should be locally determined and really reflecting kind of the idiosyncrasies of a local community, um, or whether it's normal for the state to set expectations, right, and for the, the state legislature, for example, to be really powerful. I'm looking forward to reading that. And Provost, as I'm sort of familiar, you're writing a book on millennials right now. And as a millennial, I'm definitely interested to hear uh, what you have to say about our generation. But can you sort of give us maybe a quick insight into what it pertains as well? Sure. Um, I'd say uh, Professor Dayhill Brown is an nationally recognized education policy expert. She studies education directly. I'm more secondary um, in the work I do, but I like to think that we cover some of the same turf, and I always love when we get together for informal conversations about education policy in various guises. I'd say I come at it in three ways of which you've described. One, um, I'm doing more and more work, partly academic, but partly practical, particularly in Winston-Salem, as you know, around poverty alleviation, anti-poverty work, and Know, early on in the process, and frankly, uh, my own um, experiences are, are something of a guide. But be careful about translating your biography into, into policy making. But um, I know that education is a window and path and route up from impoverished conditions. So a lot of the work we've done with the Poverty Thought Force has been mm -hmm. around in what ways can we enhance, um, particularly early childhood education, to give kids a chance to participate in what still gets called the American dream, although mobility in the United States is, has declined dramatically since the 19th century when some of those you know, themes were set and mm -hmm. described. Mm -hmm. A second way in which I you know, relate to education policy, as it were, um, is through a book I've written now, three editions of. Um, it's a sort of overall account of American government. I'm fascinated by how our government fits together the pieces and parts. and Obviously, you can't tell the story of the United States politics and government without talking about education, politics, and policy. So that's in there. But more to the point, I guess, is this book now gets used by, to my amazement, tens of thousands of college students around the country who are learning about American government in classes. Didn't begin as that kind of project, but I'm thrilled it has, gets used that way. So in an odd sort of, in a meta way, I'm educating people through this book about American government. That feels exciting and worthwhile. And I'm really interested in this generation of amazing young people, millennials so-called. And um, one of the thrusts, in fact, a chapter I'm working on right now is about the very distinctive ways in which um, this generation learns, experiences, classrooms, um, particularly at the higher ed level, which I know best. Um, so in a way, I'm describing differing modes and experiences in education. To ask, I'll summarize it in one um, pithy anecdote, really. Um, and it's kind of a dirty little secret of American higher education. When folks, and I think Wake Forest is, a, is a, an exception, but at many universities and colleges that I'm aware of or have been part of, when we administrators and faculty members design curricula, i.e. what you're learning in a classroom, and programs, the kinds of things you all are doing outside or even perhaps inside classrooms, but that are extracurricular, we say, mm -hmm. we tend to do so for dimly remembered versions of our 18-year-old selves. Mm -hmm. I would have loved this class. This program would have been swell, we say. Mm 
and what I constantly am reminding myself and my colleagues, particularly those in administrative positions who are designing um, or trying to put frameworks around these educational in and beyond class curriculum programs is they, the millennials, are not us. This amazing group of young people learns differently, studies differently, experiences differently, desires differently, um, fails differently, achieves differently. So to just take a template that we liked 30 or 40 or 50 years ago and put it on this generation doesn't work. I, we are finding out again and again in higher education places. So it has been up to dynamic professors like Dr. Dayhill Brown to not pander to these different styles, but to really learn with and design um, classroom practices and outside classroom practices in ways that take advantage of the best ways in which millennials are distinctive and help to dial down some of the ways that don't work so well. I will say as a teacher myself, I mean, my first class was at Yale in, gosh, 1994. So that was Generation X students back then. Over 20 years my plus, my teaching styles and practices and what I do in a class have evolved and shifted dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that's true of faculty of my generation. Dr. Dale Brown is younger and she probably began teaching millennials and has you know, sort of grown up doing that. But we really need to figure that out across university land. You know, in what ways can we best engage and work with millennials? And you know, this, this book, I hope, will at least partly help to describe, frankly, some ways in which Wake Forest as a educational community has adapted and changed. Also looking forward to reading that. And millennials is just one of the various hot topics that we're now going to jump into. But before we get into that, I first wanted to discuss sort of the philosophy of education. It seems more and more in the public that what sort of constitutes an education and what is the purpose of an education is becoming fiercely debated. But this debate really isn't anything new, as far as one can tell. Mm -hmm. You don't really have to look far to see differences in the thoughts regarding education and Plato or Aristotle or Kant, but even among more modern thinkers, or of, as like Bertrand Russell, uh, Richard Rorty, or even sort of Morton Radler, as I've actually been taught here in the class. Mm -hmm. So as both professors and analysts of um, administrative policy regarding education, what are your beliefs uh, in terms of the goals and sort of the meaning of education? Let me start with you, Professor. Asking the big questions. I mean, this is a, a conversation, right? And I don't, I don't want to call it a debate. Um, I think that sort of misses the point a little bit. But this is a conversation that's been going on, as you rightly pointed out, for, um, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of, of years, right? What is it that we want people to learn? What's the purpose of learning, right? What's the purpose of school? Um, you know, I think there are folks who advocate for right, a very utilitarian approach. Right? We think about education in terms of return on investment. Um, what job will this get me? Right? Um, um, what salary um, will I be able to earn? Right? Or right, what problem will I be able to solve? Right? Um, and folks who approach it uh, right, from a a more sort of purely aesthetic standpoint, right? Learning is fun, learning is about joy, right? Learning should be about intrinsic curiosity, right? I study chemistry because I like to solve puzzles. Um, and I find myself, I think, approaching it from somewhere in the middle. You know, one of the lessons that I took away from my time 
with Teach for America is that both of those things are really important, right? There needs to be joy in a learning space and there needs to be a sense of purpose in a learning space as well. Um, you know, I made the most progress, I think, with, uh, you know, my young students who were struggling readers um, when we spent time talking about why being able to read might be helpful to them or important to them later in life, and then matched that with texts that and stories, right, that actually reflected their lives and things that they could connect to. Right? So I try to keep a balance of those things um, when I'm in the classroom. And since we study public policy, you know, I don't think I have a difficult case to make in, in suggesting right that by understanding political processes or by getting um, or studying the sort of wonkish details of a particular program um, that studying how those things unfold or asking questions about right why a particular political issue is contentious school choice for example right that by understanding those processes we can right more productively engage them but at the same time, I think it's also important right, to give students space to be creative, to uh, have sort of real world experiences, right? And to make, make it okay to um, read a book because you enjoy it, right? Without necessarily the pressure of trying to solve that particular problem being the thing that underlies it. Sort of appreciating the like aesthetic of education as mm -hmm. well as learning the content as well, it seems. And uh, Provost, how about yourself? Where do you see yourself sort of aligning in terms of the conversation? As Sarah said, it's a big question, and I would try to summarize a pithy answer. All this conversation has been going on for a long time and goes on at Wake Forest pretty intensively and will go on for hundreds of years, hence, I hope. Um, I would summarize my own uh, approach. I've learned a lot from people like Dr. David Hill-Brown uh, in three E words, equity, engagement, and experimentation. Let me briefly take them in reverse order. Experimentation is you know, at least a distillation of the extraordinary educational philosophy of John Dewey, one of the great original American philosophers in general, and really, Dewey was best known, although he's not always taught this way, as a philosopher of education. Um, I'm gonna do terrible violence to his nuances <laughs> and subtleties and just say Dewey was a pragmatist in the great American pragmatic philosophical tradition, and the two-word description is try something. Um, Sarah talked earlier about the literally thousands of different school districts in the U.S. And any listener who may think, well, of course that's how it works, go to France. On any given school day, it's changed a bit, but it's still largely the case that on any given day of the week, in every single school in France, every kid is reading from the same page of the same book. That's what education looks like in a lot of places. And the radical, dramatic, at the time unthinkable American experiment was to say, Let's let a thousand educational flowers bloom. Let's try to learn from one another. The good pragmatic tradition is not, you do this and I'll do that, and we'll never talk to each other, but let's draw together. Dewey was very big on you know, classrooms as, as locuses of experimentation mm -hmm. and assessing and connecting and discussing and exchanging ideas. So that feels vital at Wake Forest, that feels vital at school, all kinds of school levels. Equity, um, um, one of the great um, difficulties in American education at all levels as long as we've been in the U.S. has been how do we enhance the possibility, we never get anywhere near guarantee, but how do we enhance the possibility that 
every child born or arriving here has a chance at a decent education. Maybe not an equal one, but a decent one. And the closer we can get to equity, um, the more important. And there's been, you know, extraordinary advances. I mean, the history of public school systems as they have started to spread worldwide is in significant part in American history. Um, you know, the high school, the notion that everybody over, you know, 14 years old will have four more years of schooling paid for at public expense did not exist in the world um, until, you know, a group of mostly Midwest reformers in the 19th century imagined the American high school. It's so central to almost every American's experience, sometimes private, sometimes public, but it didn't exist um, to a large degree before that. So, and then engagement, and Sarah um, mentioned this in, in her beautifully articulated account of how she thinks about education, but I think it's a hallmark of Wake Forest. It's a, increasingly, I hope, a hallmark of how this generation is engaged in classrooms, and frankly, it's in some ways an American tradition. Get your hands dirty. Try something applied. We are not a nation that is given to abstruse theorizing, although we do plenty of it in the academy. Um, and you see it in the Wake Forest version of liberal arts education, engaged liberal arts. That's actually the term um, that the dean of the college uses. Um, classroom after classroom, um, those walls, either figuratively or literally, break down, and students move out and beyond and pick up new ideas and, and new practices in part by doing things. We aren't a vocational institution. It's not that you go weld and therefore you get a degree in welding, but some version of that is in many, many, many of our classes. And Sebastian, you're in a class now where you've spent, um, I know, at least as much time as you spent in the classroom out in the community, um, engaging with, learning from, learning how to asset map uh, in low-income neighborhoods, um, imagining how we might implement some of the Poverty Thought Force recommendations and or um, thinking about a new notion for a community center by going and talking to people in the community about what they'd like to see in such a Winston-Salem institution. So that is one microcosm of many, many, many examples at Wake Forest, and I think indeed across American educations in which education in which we engage. So experimentation, equity, and engagement, in no way have those three poles um, been achieved at Wake Forest or anywhere else, but they feel like aspirational guide stars, guideposts. It's important to note, most people in other places who do education in some local or national sense um, would not pick those three much of the time. So Dr. Daniel Brown is nodding, which means either I got something right, or it's so wrong that you'd like to jump in. <laughs> no, no. I just want to respond to that a little bit. You know, there's um, a tension, I think, that's important to recognize between experimentation and uh, equity. Mm. That when we have, and this is something that comes out in my work, right, that when we have so many sort of different school districts around the country, right, that one of the benefits of that is that we have a lot of innovation. We have many opportunities to learn from one another, right? There's no one way to solve some particular challenge in a classroom. Um, but it's also a system that magnifies um, inequalities on the ground, right? So that if communities are extraordinarily segregated by um, race ethnicity or by income. Um, and if those segregations, right, track onto school districts, mm -hmm. right, then school districts are not gonna be very well equipped on their own, right, to um, 
address some of those inequalities, right? Because some will have very little capacity and very few resources, and some will have a lot of resources. And it's hard to experiment meaningfully with a few resources. If you don't have resources, it's really tough to invest in some of those um, innovations, even if, right, you have um, people with great ideas, um, which is certainly the case. Yeah, and it seems with sort of constructing sort of an equitable plan on approach on either these three E's or any other one, that one of the major variables in planning it is sort of the trends that exist within each generation that passes through the districts and the higher levels of higher education. And with millennials, there seems to be a, an interesting debate or conversation more so about the the trends that currently exist and that we're seeing in the classroom as well as outside the classroom. And I was interested in your time as professors, especially having sort of taught and grown with this millennial uh, generation through also this technological expansion within education as well. Mm-hmm. What are sort of the trends that you're seeing with millennials and their interests and maybe needs and approaches to education at the various levels, if you have any sort of specific uh, experience. Well, you're asking about millennials, and there's a few things. So one, I am technically a millennial. I'm on the very upper edge, right, of that cusp. So some people would count me as a millennial, and some people would not. Um, But I started teaching in uh, 2006 at the University of Wisconsin. Um, And even in that short time, I would say that I've observed a little bit of a a shift um, in my students. And I I honestly don't know if it's fair to think about this as a a generational question, Um, but the students who I taught when I first began teaching college students were not students who had spent their entire sort of K-12 experience under an accountability or a testing regime. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, this was Wisconsin and now I'm at Wake Forest. And so these are different populations of students, right? And so, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's the difference that I'm observing. But it seems to me that, um, you know, students who spent their whole educational experience under No Child Left Behind and who were tested all the time, right? Who took, um, you know, a minimum of 100, right, standardized exams over the course of their educational career have a little more anxiety about getting the answer right. Um, And one of the things that I think about in particular with regards to millennial students is kind of um, undoing right, some of that anxiety, right, Um, creating a sort of learning environment where um, there isn't necessarily a right answer, right, and trying to facilitate some comfort with that, Um, uh, giving students, right, opportunities to kind of design their own projects or be creative with them or do sort of problem solving, right, so moving beyond that kind of multiple choice framework that I think has been forced on um, a lot of students in the millennial generation. Now, Dr. Kirsch is a, a, you know, an expert, right, to return some praise here <laughs> um, in uh, right, the ways in which this generation is different um, from the generations that preceded it. Uh, 
but that's, I guess, one thing, right, that I would say that I think about and that I try to respond to a little bit. And sort of jumping off that point about sort of the mental health aspect of mm-hmm. education, Provost, as a uh, student in your class right now, we had a popular article from The Atlantic the, titled The Coddling of the American Mind, which sort of talks about this mental health issue in, that exists in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And you see it with the development of uh, these terms and devices as trigger warnings or microaggressions that have become increasingly popular both not only in the campus, but it seems as well within the classroom and by some professors as well, in the art, at least of the examples used in the article. And are either of you, or I guess we'll start with you, Provost, are you sort of seeing the effects of these devices here at Wake or with your just colleagues in general? And how do you see that effect playing out in whatever direction you believe? Certainly a big national conversation in which the coddling piece, I think, furthered or, you know, turned a different direction, et cetera. Um, But lots of conversation around these themes and practices. There's another set of sort of pinnacle pieces, like a New Yorker article by Nathan Heller, where he went to Oberlin um, and absorbed campus. And unlike the coddling piece, which is the authors imposing their vision and view of higher ed, um, you know, on the reading audience. Heller's piece basically is a report from the field. This is what it's like at Oberlin now. Maybe a little exaggerated, he picked which students he talked to, of course, but it was a pretty dramatic piece. So um, these have been taken as kind of markers and some people respond with loathing and fear and fury. And there are others who say, well, you know, this is not enough. At least we're finally recognizing how difficult it is, is to be a student in the minority, however defined in a university, especially elite one today. Um, it's a long conversation. I haven't talked to Dr. Dale Brown about it, but I know that she's either taught or is at least engaged with students about this before, because in our class, some were saying, well, as Dr. Dale Brown said, comma, um, I'll just say this. I think I'm going to cut through an enormous debate around this and, and simply say that it's interesting to look at who's responding to and writing about from a critical perspective uh, or some of the main voices thoughtfully responding to and writing about trigger warnings and and coddling and so on, as they call it. Um, it tends to be faculty members, actually. And for the most part, there's a handful of you know, critics outside the academy who are frankly bloviating about stuff they aren't really aware of. But people who are in the classroom. There's a, another um, piece that's gotten a lot of notoriety, if I remember right, it was in the Chronicle of Higher Education, although it might have also been in the Atlantic, from a liberal faculty member who says she's scared of her liberal students um, because of the possibility of, you know, deep criticism or complaining to administrators in ways that might get her fired or so on about things she says. Um, I think that fear is a a pretty um, honest um, description. And I'll say this, that most of the critics or at least describers um, in the national conversation about students um, expressing concern about what they're being asked to read or what kind of things get said in the classroom or uh, the ways in which their speech is offered and the like. Uh, most of the faculty members who are writing critically about that um, are actually themselves liberal, so to speak. They share the view that it's important to have all voices reflected in a classroom, that we should have you know, students helping shape their experience and the like. So I, I guess at bottom what I wind up wondering is who's, who's power or um, authority is being questioned. 
it's not so much the students who are finding voice and stepping up and saying, I'd like to know what it is I'm gonna read that might you know, be an issue, or I'd like to have some say in the curriculum. It's the folks in the front of the classroom who frankly aren't that used to being challenged. Um, one, of the things, one of the things about this generation, and it began a little bit in my generation X before, was the diminution of challenging professors. Uh, used to be a, a, go back to the 60s for example, and students were literally taking over classrooms and uh, demanding new programs and things like black studies and gender studies and the like. So again, to summarize way too briefly, an enormous and thoughtful and I hope ongoing debate is, it strikes me as interesting that the folks who say, I, I'm in solidarity with these young people, but they scare me, or I fear them, or gosh, I can't say what I used to say in the classroom. That's what happens when authority gets challenged. Authority can sometimes push back. And so, um, no. Folks who are in a, a, a custom position of authority who are now being asked to share some of that and are writing critically about it, that's about as old as anything. Yeah, and one of the reasons we sort of see this rise of, I'd say, uh, responding authority is because of the developments in technology that allow us to really connect so much better and sort of engage as a community towards issues of the matter. And this technological growth has also made a lot of impact on education as well. Obviously, earlier on with the sort of analog instruments, the calculators and whatnot, but now with the advancements in laptops and iPads, uh, we're seeing it implemented more in programs. I know back home that my school district now incorporates laptops at the middle school level, which was something that I didn't really understand at first, but sort of made sense as I pondered on it. And I was interested in how do you see this sort of symbiosis or this ongoing combination between uh, education and technology mm -hmm. playing out currently and in the future to come and sort of how we should approach it. Yeah because it seems to be taking over, at, but in referencing back to the Cotillane of the American Mind article, it also has sort of these effects on how we engage socially, and that seems to be a big aspect, or I hope to many that is a big aspect of the classroom, apart from all the, the reading and the testing as well. So, uh, Professor, your thoughts? Sure. Gosh, another really big issue, right? I think I can back it to one thing I said earlier, which is that we often um, see something new, right? And mm -hmm. imagine it as fundamentally transforming and remaking education, right? Um, and then we're a little bit let down um, by what sort of unfolds in reality. To some extent, I see a little of that happening um, with schools and technology, um, that there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of investment without necessarily a lot of thought about that implementation piece. What's going to happen right, when all of those iPads arrive in the school district? How is that fundamentally gonna change right, what a teacher is doing or what a student is doing, how they're reading, how they're connecting to the text right, that they're exposed to? Um, and so in a lot of places, I think you've seen you know, big investments right, without a lot of thought about how that's gonna unfold. LAUSD, for example, right, bought a lot of iPads and was... Translate that acronym. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, Los Angeles um, Unified School District, right, bought a lot of iPads, made a big deal about the investment, and ultimately 
right? It didn't sort of yield much in the way of a different experience for students, you know? At the same time, I think there's a lot of possibility and that's really exciting, right? Um, that uh, kids in rural school districts in North Carolina might be able to access some of the, um, you know, really high level in, of instruction, for example, um, at the North Carolina um, School of Science and Math, right? We have tremendous um, high school instructors there um, teaching college level coursework to high school students, right? But only a few or only a small number of kids in the state really have access to that high level instruction. So I think technology is creating a lot of possibility, um, but I think we also have to really carefully imagine what um, that is going to look like, right? And not imagine that it's going to be cheap or easy um, or that there's something innate about the technology that will improve a student's learning experience, right? You have to think about carefully structuring the interface for students, right? And make sure that, for example, they're not sitting in front of a computer going through worksheets alone that are at a low level, right? Um, we have to invest in infrastructure, right? To make sure there actually is high-speed internet available at all of these local school districts. Um, in my own classrooms, though, I found it can be a really great tool for continuing conversations outside of class, right? Um, it expands, I think, the range of um, texts um, and materials that I'm able to share with my students, right? So they'll ask a question in class and I will point them to a YouTube video or a documentary, right? And I'll share that on our um, Google Plus page, right? Where we kind of keep a conversation going beyond class. And, you know, in 2006, the forums for that were a lot more awkward um, and were a lot more limited. Um, and so I think there are ways in which uh, technology is creating really exciting opportunities for connections between students and teachers. Last night, even, there was um, uh, NPR was reporting right on a study um, uh, conducted and that focused just on text messages, right? And actually, you don't really need a lot of technology um, to make that work, but right, you're sending text messages to parents about their kids' progress, right? And that yield yielded, I think, a 50% reduction in the number of Fs in classes, right, which meant that a lot of kids were getting Cs, right, and making progress towards graduation um, that they otherwise wouldn't have been if the district wasn't able to sort of send an automatic update to a parent to increase their involvement in the school system, right? But when you think about it, that's, that's a fairly low-tech solution. Right. It's more about how it's used, right? <laughs> Thank you for that answer. And... <laughs> The sort of constructive balance that you seem to preach in approaching technology with mm -hmm. education, I know Provost Kirsch seems to have familiarity towards that as well. Uh, we're allowed to use laptops in yeah. his class, mm -hmm. but th there's uh, a famous. There's always a study that he cites where he says that you you retain more knowledge from reading uh, uh, on paper than uh, on a laptop. Mm -hmm. So while he gives us a liberty of choice, so you can see where he's sort of swayed towards and it seems interesting because with this productive value of education and this these interactions and communicative abilities we also see it happening in the private sector with the development of these online courses 
that are sort of, in many ways, addendums of universities. If you go on an EDX or a Coursera, two of the popular sort of higher level education online course sites, you have classes from very brand name universities there that people are able to access for free and or even pay to achieve some sort of certification mm-hmm. outside the legitimate sort of formal university structure. And I was very much interested in sort of how you see this, not this private Mm -hmm. incorporation of technology, but this sort of development outside the formal structure with technology and education. And I guess, Provost, how you sort of see it as an administrator uh, occurring now and the effects that it may have uh, later on. dozen years ago, no less an authority on the future than Bill Gates um, said at a private event, or at least was reporting as as a private event, that universities and colleges were bricks and mortar for a long time, and now he said they're clicks and mortar, and in a generation, there'll be no mortar, just clicks. That's pretty scary when someone like Bill Gates um, issues a pronouncement about the future that is heard by colleges and universities like Wake Forest that still describe ourselves as face-to-face residential education at the core of what we do, and that frankly spends a lot of money on building and maintaining things that are made of bricks and mortar. Um, Along the same period, the last, this is more like five years ago, a Harvard Business School professor named Clay Christensen, who had become enormously famous, at least in the business school professor world, um, for developing a theory and writing a couple of very high-selling books on disruptions of established industries, practices, institutions, and like, turned his attention to the universities and talked about how we are being disrupted or soon will be disrupted from below, so to speak, by the kinds of technologies you're describing. You know, if you can provide education in a fast, cheap, millennial embracing or at least engaging um, way through reaching hundreds of thousands of people instead of the 15 or so that Professor Dayhill Brown and I like to engage our classes of, um, what's going to be left of universities in these models? That's the question you're really asking. And I got to say that, you know, the number of conferences and symposia and online chats, ironically, and the like, that I've gone to with other provosts, university presidents and chancellors to wring our hands and express anxiety about this have been, you know, in the dozens. Um, <clears throat> again, no less a figure in higher American education than John Hennessy, the president of Stanford, said four or five years ago that a tsunami is already washing over higher education, by which he meant the ubiquity of online and other forms, other delivery methods, so to speak, of education. His perhaps unfortunate metaphor continued that it's now washing back out to sea, and only schools that recognize and adapt to this enormous set of changes are going to remain after the flood has passed. So in all kinds of ways, we are being told that the traditional business model, so to speak, of the university really the traditional practice model. Professors like Dr. D.B. in classrooms that, frankly, you mentioned earlier Plato, Plato would have recognized, except they might be inside instead of outside on Agora, um, providing information in and developing learning and expanding minds in a back and forth dialogical kind of way. I mean, this is done, gone, and finished, except it's not. I think about Wake Forest, a place that really, when faced as we have been over the last few years with a endless stream of warnings and enticements and opportunities and challenges around how we provide education and what is essentially a 2,000 year old model, 
um, how the face-to-face -face residential liberal arts, i.e. broad-based, multifarious, not, as we're being told, needs to happen, more very focused and specific, um, you know, certificate-based education. All this is changing, we're told. Wake has doubled down. We say liberal arts are replaced, we can't. We say engage liberal arts. We think that's important, actually a wake tradition and hallmark. We say face-to-face -face residential. We feel there is something vitally important about being in a shared space with our students. Yes, technology in ways that Sarah described um, eloquently can aid and abet and enhance and expand the work we do, but the core of the work remains the same, or so we bet. And unlike some universities I've been part of or know about that have you know, trumpeted and advertised first and foremost their ability to you know, invest $50 million in an expansive suite of online courses and that are flipping their classrooms so much that students are more often upside down, I guess, than they're right side up. Um, this is not a point about Wake or being Luddite College, meaning no technological changes come. I think we do so in context and carefully, but at core, we have reaffirmed, doubled down, and embraced this traditional model. Well, millennials aren't buying it, are they? By some metrics, my goodness, they are. Wake Forest, over this decade of dramatic, tsunami-like, disruptive transformation that will lead to universities that only exist in cyberspace, so says Bill Gates, over that decade, we have tripled the number of applications to Wake Forest. Uh, we have become a much more selective, not desperately chasing after technological changes, hoping we can attract a handful of the remaining millennials um, to come to our class. It's been quite the opposite. So something in this world of disruption and change and technological advance and frontiers and innovations and so on, something about what we have traditionally offered and have affirmed we will continue to offer looks really attractive to these next generation, 22nd century young people and their parents. So we'll continue to experiment, we'll continue to innovate, we'll continue to figure out how do we bring technologies, extraordinary values um, into and beyond our classrooms in ways that make sense. And at bottom, until the last brick falls, uh, we will remain a place I like to think for 180 years to come, where people in, frankly, conversations like this one, sit and look at each other, talk to one another, aided and abetted by some pretty fancy technology here, uh, but at bottom have a conversation, tell each other stories, express, engage, look at cues, nod and write things down on parchment with ink pens. I think that will remain. And I sort of have to agree with you there. And I'd now like to sort of take the scope beyond the Wake Forest and to the higher levels of sort of U.S. domestic education. And while this experimentation is definitely seen in the various districts, let's, I'd like to talk more about sort of the federal and state approaches. Uh, a very sort of common anecdote about American public systems is that we're falling in literacy of, across the board in many categories. And it seems that this has not been changed for the better in any respect. It seems that we still lack a lot of implementation effectivity coming from the Department of Education and the other uh, analects of Congress at the federal and state level. So what are some of the issues that you're seeing and sort of the approaches of uh, Professor DB 
uh, at the federal and state level uh, right now? So I'm gonna I'm gonna hook into one point that you mentioned. Right, there's um, the United States is falling in literacy. Right, you mentioned that, and I think that's is that referencing a. Um, it was the study by the National Center for Education Statistics. Okay. Um, so I think. If you look at the history in particular of right, national conversations about schools in the United States, uh, we periodically enter into a period of kind of moral panic over the test scores of our students. Right? Um, and often we talk about how the United States is falling right, relative to other countries, right? We're falling behind. I think there's a few things that I think are helpful to bear in mind when when we're framing a conversation in that way, and we're thinking it for, like in particular, about test scores and what they tell us. You know, I think one, you know, the United States never was number one on test scores. Since we've been internationally benchmarking ourselves against other countries, we haven't come out on top. And that doesn't mean that the United States isn't a pioneer when it comes to investing in and establishing and innovating um, public systems of education, because we are. Um, but there are steep, uh, what we call in the business, social gradients when it comes to educational achievement. And that means that in the United States, the impact of your family's um, income and wealth is more pronounced than it is elsewhere. So that if you were to look, um, for example, at France or some of the other countries we benchmark ourselves against, right? A child in poverty would be performing higher there than they are here on average in the United States. And we have a lot of children who are living in poverty. So, when you look at the average scores in the U.S., um, our average score comes out somewhere in the middle. In the middle, in the middle, <laughs> in the middle. When we compare ourselves to other countries, but if you look at the diversity of school systems in the country, you'll find that uh, we have some of the highest achieving students in the world, right? And then we also have really some of the the lowest achieving children. Um, so I think that's an important sort of caveat to consider when you're when you're trying to understand what it is that those test scores tell us, right? And we have some states too where um, that social gradient is not as steep, right? So um, I think Massachusetts, for example, um, where really the public school systems in the United States got their their start, right? Um, so I think that's one that's sort of important thing to remember about that kind of moral panic. Yeah, it seems sort of these approaches are, it is now that these approaches and questions of ideological sort of schema have been handed over to Betsy DeVos, the recent Secretary of Education. And while there is a lot of controversy over her uh, confirmation, in fact, it seemed like the most over any of uh, Trump's cabinet members for the most part, she seems to be advocating in some degree mm -hmm. towards this idea of school's choice. And, and it seems to have, in some ways, parallels with this idea of, of experimentation. Now, while she is, has no background in education and she's not come from any sort of schooling in public education, uh, there still is some gravitation towards this idea that not only are our schools failing, 
but that we need a much different lens of approach. And I was sort of interested in hearing both of your thoughts on Devos and how you feel that she is going to either contribute towards maybe the solution or a more constructive solution regarding that same problem, or in fact, maybe take away from the conversation and perhaps delay it even further. I'll make two points and then let the actual expert go into richer detail, as I know um, Professor Dale Brown is eminently capable of doing, and always does when we talk. Um, one Are you is- Are you of getting into the weeds too much? <laughs> Not always. <laughs> Uh, you, 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 you describe the field of flowers. One, <laughs> a couple quick points. One is, as I know Dr. D.B. teaches, in fact, um, because of the immense decentralization of the American education system compared to most others that we compete with or benchmark against or, you know, free we're being beaten by economically and so on, um, the Secretary of Education doesn't have that much power. It just has to be said. They're a symbolic figure and they control a certain degree of budgetary resources they can put into this bucket or that bucket or another bucket. What you're seeing is, you know, sort of in the huge fight over DeVos's confirmation, say, and the continued protests and resistance since, is the continuation of an, a long time existing debate by other means, as it were. And she's a national figure, and people who are displeased with Trump for a variety of reasons may have put some effort there, but also I think some things that are fought out appropriately at the local and maybe the state level are you know, making their way into a national um, level because the appointment's so visible. But uh, we didn't have a Secretary of Education until the 1970s. We somehow staggered along as a country for 200 years without a Secretary of Education or an Education Department. It's a relatively recent invention. And there are some recent departments that do have a lot of power, suddenly they come in on security. But because education in the US is such a local, matter. Because there are a thousand school districts with a thousand different ways, actually 5,000 different ways of approaching how you organize and develop and the like um, in one state, California or Texas, as, as Sarah said earlier, it's very difficult for any Secretary of Education to say, all right, here's how the nation will move. Again, mostly from where I sit, they control resources to move those out, point one. Um, general point two is that you referenced Sebastian, the sort of recent hot debate over school choice. This has been going on for a good long while, using different terms and practices and details. And again, I know that Dr. Dale Brown teaches this in her classes, so I'm, I'm at the edge of my level of knowledge, except to observe that you know, what can feel like a fresh new debate, because my kids, people are saying, are having the opportunity or being forced or having kids cream skimmed off from my school district or my particular school or the like because of choice. This is a 40-year-old debate. Milton Friedman, of all people, the free-to-choice guy, sort of stumbled across an idea and popularized it. Maybe not stumbled, but popularized it a good long while ago. And what we're seeing now is the latest iteration of an old debate. I suspect that because DeVos is in a position to direct resources here rather than there, maybe change some you know broad general regulations, you might see some uh, meaningful change. I don't want to diminish that, but this will remain really ultimately a school board to school board, district to district kind of fight. Let me turn to the real expert for um, a greater illumination of the DeVos. I'd like to jump in and just right before and perhaps maybe target the conversation more towards something more that DeVos seems to be specifically in favor for, and this is charter schools. 
And charter schools seem to have been a popular topic, but there still seems to be this sort of unfamiliarity or mm-hmm. uh, unconclusiveness on how to approach them. Just It seems just as much as the public education system itself. There are charter schools that are great success stories that we see, but at the same time, you, you only have to turn to John Oliver to see failures of the charter schools in various traumatic ways. And these have greater effects not only on the students within the schools, but the communities around them that really rely on some form of edu- some form of stable education within the community. So I just wanted, I was hoping that you would be able Good to question. clarify the sure. m- a bit about charter schools and sort of how Devos fits into this debate and how you see it maybe playing out yeah. if you could squeeze that all in. <laughs> no, I'm 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 so glad you asked that. Right, I think. Uh, John King, right, the former Secretary of Education, was here um, just last week. And uh, in response to a similar question, um, he made the very important point, right, which actually builds on um, what Provost Kirsch is telling us, that what a charter school is differs widely from state to state. So to get a hook into the sort of discussion about charter schools, I actually think it's most helpful to go back to basics, right? Um, And they were initially um, an idea that came out of um, the AFT, right? A a teacher's union, okay? Um, And the idea behind them was that, you know, states and the federal government are imposing all of these rules on schools and they're constraining the creativity that professional educators have in the classroom. Let's create some space for professional teachers to propose an innovative school design. Let's allow them to say, could we be free of that regulation or that regulation around how we structure the school day or around who needs to be certified and what or what that certification looks like, right? And let's let educators experiment a little bit, right? So plugging into that idea of experimentation. And you know what? They're going to prove to us that some things work. They're going to be these sort of laboratories in which we identify really promising practices And we will then take those really promising practices from charter schools, and now that we have these sort of testing sites, right, we'll be able to take those um, and transfer them into the the traditional public school system. And that was the the sort of initial idea, right, the the policy logic, that this would be a center for innovation and be guided by professional, really skilled educators who wanted an opportunity to put their ideas into practice. During the 1990s, that idea shifted, right? And so instead of just thinking about charter schools as places where innovation happened, right? Other folks who are really enamored of the idea of kind of introducing competition into the school system kind of seized on that idea um, and thought, well, maybe we can make charter schools compete with traditional public schools for enrollments. And that will not just make these sites of innovation, but they'll also force those traditional public schools to innovate, to try harder, to be more creative, right? Just by their very presence, right? The charter school would have this impact on the system. So state after state passed a charter school law, and those charter school laws looked tremendously different. Some of them, for example, don't allow for-profit operators to run the charter schools. Some of them have really high standards for what that charter school proposal looks like, right? You can't get every single charter proposal 
through, right, an authorizer. An authorizer might say, nope, this is a bad proposal, it's not gonna go through, right? And the state laws have a lot of influence over those kinds of minutia, those kinds of details. Um, and that's really, I think, part of what you see playing out in Michigan, um, where DeVos has been most active, is that the charter school law in that state doesn't um, right, require some of those um, conflict of interests to be controlled for, allows for the involvement of for-profit operators, um, doesn't really set the highest of standards for which proposals can become schools. And if you think back to experimentation, right, it makes sense that some experiments, some innovations are gonna work and some aren't gonna work so well. If you set a really high bar for what that proposal looks like, those ones are gonna be more likely to turn out, right? And again, to go back to Massachusetts, right? They've scaled up their charter school system in a sort of slow, measured way, right? Vetting every proposal carefully. Um, and they've seen, right, a sort of higher proportion of charter schools that are successful, that are really working well with the kids that they have, right? Which is not to say that there are not some um, challenges still present in that system, in particular around uh, disparate discipline um, of black students in those schools. Um, but by and large, that system has been a lot more effective in part because of that control. The sort of openness and the freedom that you have in Michigan means that a lot more of those experiments are not going very well, right? Mm. Um, and they're not, right, able to improve on what the traditional public schools are doing, right? So you have a lot of kids, um, in particular in the Detroit area, who are um, living in uh, pretty dire poverty, right? And um, that charter school sector has, more than anything, I think, introduced um, flux and churn, right, where there already was a lot in their lives, and a lot of those systems have not succeeded. Um, my understanding of Betsy DeVos's philosophy is that control and regulation are, generally speaking, not positive things. And so she has been, you know, opposed to tightening up some of the regulations that most people who study school choice, myself included, um, would think make the school choice sector right, more robust, right, higher quality. Does that? That, that definitely, I hope, clarifies <laughs> it for not only me, but the listeners as well. And it seems that we're coming up on the end, but I'd like to ask two more questions, so that's okay. One sort of common theme that both of you seem to keep bringing up is this, uh, this conversation of poverty and sort of the economy and how it plays with education. And turning on to the higher education realm, this seems to be a very popular debate, especially when considering uh, student aid mm -hmm. and university funding and sort of the price of where the university should fall. It seems that money's influence on education has grown greater over the years. The rise in tuition at most major universities hints at this, but what's even greater than that is really this national debt that keeps acclimating at higher rates, it seems, every year. And I was interested with you, Provost, as an administrator who has to tackle these sorts of dealings when 
developing an educational plan is how do you sort of see that this this value placed on capital uh, is having on a higher education? Because in my own personal opinion, you sort of see it shifting the scale to whether it becomes a burden or not to seek out these sorts of opportunities. And it becomes a much greater consideration than the one that you want everyone to seem to have, which is I want to pursue higher education at some degree. So I would love to just hear your thoughts. Nicely framed and yeah, anyways, nothing's more important in higher education right now than questions of access and equity. Mm -hmm. um, we're back to that theme. Um, and hard to speak for the sector in a way across higher ed, you see the same kind of multiple experiments and blossoming in some places and closing of, of universities and colleges and others emerging. It's a, uh, it is clearly a, um, the accumulating debt, as you say, and it's um, in some ways increased difficulty in paying off as a, as a real significant source of concern. Um, focusing on Wake Forest specifically, um, this has been a major initiative, uh, making Wake more affordable to a wider range of um, people has been essential. We will, as of this coming um, graduation, it will mark five years in a row that Wake has reduced the average debt burden of seniors who receive you know, loans and, and grants and the like. Um, it has, there are very, very few elite or Otherwise, uh, colleges and universities right now in a time of financial exigency for many schools that have reduced their graduates' debt burden for five years in a row. We're very um, proud of that, and we want to keep the foot to the accelerator. It's not just that it's sort of come down by, you know, a couple dollars a year. Last year, year on year, it fell 13%. That was the highest decrease of any, you know, school in a sort of four-year recognized college university that's not for profit um, in the country. And... We continue to make it enormous priority. It doesn't mean we have stopped increasing tuition, although the over the same period, not coincidentally, the average year-on-year -year tuition increase has also been the lowest we've seen for any five-year period in the history of Wake Forest, at least going back to where we can figure and calculate um, tuition expenses. So partly we've tried to keep the rising cost of attending Wake Forest low. Um, and we've also put an enormous push on financial aid. We have a big capital campaign. Um, we've raised $600 million so far towards a billion, which is stunning for Wake Forest. We're only the 24th or 25th private university in the country to announce a billion-dollar campaign, and we're much smaller and, frankly, much poorer than most of those, the Stanfords and the Chicagos and the Harvards that have done billion-dollar campaigns. So um, <clears throat> we've really stretched for that in an enormous proportion, um, hundreds of millions of dollars of that, um, campaign effort has been targeted at scholarships and financial aid in various ways um, over the period I've described um, or more generally since President Hatch took office a dozen years ago we've more than doubled financial aid available to students so we have seen as a result a vast increase on this campus in the proportion of low-income zero-income families in some cases and relatedly, first-generation students. Um, this has been a dramatic shift since, say, I graduated from Wake Forest, where it was much more of a middle-class ethos. We had far fewer really wealthy students um, back then, and we had very few really poor students. That's changed dramatically, frankly, at both ends. And part of the effort has been uh, to ensure that there is still an affordable 
uh, Wake Forest for folks in the middle class, ever defined. Um, we don't want this to be a barbell institution with you know, a, ultimately a majority of either very rich or very poor kids. Um, that's brought some challenges along the way. We have to make sure that we're being um, not just generous and, um, or at least acting affirmatively in our admissions policies um, to include low-income kids, but we also need to make sure that once here, um, students with very different economic uh, means and backgrounds are able to connect and have the same Wake Forest experience um, to the extent that's possible. So a Wake Forest answer to a genuine national problem you've rightly pointed to, I will note as a, parent, as a parenthesis that a rather frightening proportion of that national debt comes not from universities like ours, but from for-profit schools mm-hmm. um, that frankly are cynically uh, u- using government funds and enticing students to pursue degrees that are all but valueless, that very rarely get finished, and in a few cases where the even large for-profit um, institutions like Corinthians say go out of business leaving students really in dire straits. They still have to pay those loans back mm-hmm. to an institution that doesn't exist anymore. Um, my worry, I'll say parenthetically, is that this administration, not necessarily um, Secretary DeVos, but across the administration, is um, moving into a friendlier regulatory environment for what have been, um, quite frankly, loathsome education practices by some of the for-profits. I'm worried those are going to rise again. There are some decent operators in that space, but there are some very dangerous bottom feeders, and I'm worried those are going to start to pop up again and, and frankly contribute to the debt problem at the higher elite university and private and public um, I think we'll have a we'll find ways to manage that. Many schools like Wake Forest are focusing a lot of dollars and a lot of attention on access and equity. Um, I think it's going to be difficult, but we'll get to a much better place there um, since this this problem is crested. And um, again, I think we're leaders in reducing the average debt load. Other places are following us. I'm worried about though the the half the population that either doesn't go to college or goes to a in a late night advertise on TV for-profit institution that is largely taking advantage of folks. Sarah's been nodding vigorously, so um, she's got to jump in. More about the importance of reining in the the for-profit providers who are exploiting, right, veterans, right, working parents, right, people who are just trying to do a better Right, job providing for their families or move up in their careers and who instead find themselves you know driven um, driven into debt uh, right sold something that that is not really going to benefit them in the long term um, I would zoom out slightly right from thinking about the cost of higher education because I think that, again that the context um, for that problem is really important that um, it's not just that college costs a lot, but college costs a lot at a time when income and wealth inequality, right, are at incredibly high levels. And so mm-hmm. the demand for higher education is higher, right? And the role or the potential role of higher education in um, mm-hmm. helping make the American dream, right, mobility a real thing. Um, is more important than ever. Uh, 
so on the one hand, I think institutions right have a big role to play in that. You know, one in making sure that college is affordable, that students can graduate without debt, um, helping them in the process of transitioning to the workplace. And right, our OPCD has done a lot of work right to support students in that transition when they leave school. I think that those kinds of institutional shifts are huge. Um, also, right, making sure the employees of the university, right, have an ability to, right, earn a living wage and send their families, um, send their own children, right, to school that they can benefit from and access some of the educational resources. Um, but I think also, right, it has to be an institutional priority in terms of how the institution sets itself up, right, and Wake is doing a lot of things in that regard, but it also has to be a bigger public priority as well, right? We've got to put public dollars towards um, supporting, you know, young people going to college, right? But also non-traditional students, right, who want to earn a degree. And I think that that's, that's got to be a national priority um, and a state priority um, in the years to come. And I sort of like to end on this diversity, but specifically on the diversity of ideas at the university. A few weeks ago, we saw at UC Berkeley the banning of former Breitbart editor Milo Yiannopoulos, and that banning of his appearance led to a lot of response that seemed to play out catastrophically on the Berkeley campus and around it in the city of Berkeley itself. And it seemed that sort of it would have been better for Berkeley rather to cancel and deter his his ideas from entering the campus to instead sort of embrace him with a discourse similar to what's seen here. <laughs> and I'm interested, and while I sort of believe towards that argument, at the same time, there this running conversation of the sort of equalness of ideas and the same utility or the same value among what seem to be wildly conflicting beliefs seems to play a fact. So to sort of summarize all the, where this is going, uh, would the rise in hostility just between factions of any kind on, on campuses because of the wide range of diversity that exists, how do you hope that universities gear themselves and how do you see them gearing or contributing constructively to this ongoing development? I'll let both of you answer since this is the last question. So you can choose. You know, as a as a professor who teaches political science, right, I value at a very high level, right? diverse ideas, and I want my students to be able to disagree with one another, right? I think that's important, right? And I don't expect that they will all leave my class um, in agreement, right, about the contours of the policy issues that we talk about or about the best ways to approach them, right? Even if I think they will have right, some knowledge and experience, right, some common language and common vocabulary. You know, at the same time, right, not all speech is the same, right? Uh, and um, my understanding of, you know, Milo Yiannopoulos in particular is that when he has come to campuses, he has outed 
um, and rhetorically incited violence against undocumented people, um, undocumented students, and transgendered students, right? Um, and to me, right, a person who encourages and espouses violence, right, that's not speech that I think is welcome on a university campus. It's certainly not speech that's welcome in my classroom. Yeah, there is something to definitely be said about how he presents himself linguistically. I recently just saw him on Bill Maher the other week, and it seemed a lot of his sort of responses to genuine points was more emotionally based reasoning. But while he does seem to have some legitimacy, at least prior in his position at Breitbart and uh, for that with his own blog, it becomes sort of difficult maneuvering with some with this topic. Again, you know, a person who regularly stands up in public and encourages violence against a group of people may occasionally say reasonable things. Um, I don't think that the fact that they occasionally say reasonable things means that as a university we're required to welcome them into a space, right? Um, you know, it is not always, I think, easy to identify, right, what constitutes acceptable speech and what does not. But when it comes to, right, um, encouraging violence against others, I think we can draw a pretty clear line there. Um, and again, if that's the kind of speech you regularly engage in, right, saying something reasonable on occasion in other spaces doesn't negate, right, the obligation, I think, of the university to protect its students um, uh, uh, against that kind of targeting. And I, I definitely agree. I know, I definitely agree with you. It's just, as I said, it's difficult because especially when you see sort of how it plays out following the cancellation where you see not only videos of attacks against, as you said, these undocumented uh, undocumented immigrants and so forth, but you also see it from the same liberal side against these people uh, in favor of having uh, Milo and others and other ideologues in some capacity coming onto campus. And from that, looking towards that sort of aftermath of how something that sounds so reasonable when d discussing it like this, it becomes, I think it just becomes difficult in sort of approaching it without letting it go awry very quickly. And Provost Kirsch, I'd like to sort of end with your thoughts on not only our mean Professor DB's conversation, but towards the topic overall. And I'll let you guys go. <laughs> By some measures, this is the most polarized American politics and society more generally has been, uh, meaning a farther difference between people who generally associate with a right or conservative point of view and a liberal or left point of view mm -hmm. since the Civil War. That's uh, a pretty dramatic fact, but Congress is more polarized. We can measure the way they vote together in different parties. Um, American public um, has moved farther apart than at any time in memory. And political science actually measure this stuff. So that is a generally recognized, discouraging place to be. Um, tends to be bad things happen politically and socially when you're farther apart as opposed to good things. I like clashes of ideas. I've been engaging in them all my life, um, thanks in part to Wake Forest education. I think there's something incredibly exhilarating and important about testing your views and opinions and ideas against 
someone who actually has disagreeing um, backgrounds and therefore the increasing technology-aided uh, inclination to move into private echo chamber silos where the people in your Facebook feed or um, you know, Twitter, Twitter places you follow or otherwise sort of engage, uh, shrink to people who more or less, or sources that more or less share your point of view is worrisome as well. We're an educational institution. I think it is imperative. In some ways, it's among the top two or three things we should be doing um, to help our students in particular, but also one another at the faculty and staff level, um, better navigate a increasingly polarized um, space. The first time in the history of the Gallup poll asking the question whether you actually fear people with different opinions from your own, that a majority of Americans said yes. Even in the McCarthy era, people didn't, at least a majority of people didn't say they feared those who had different ideological mm -hmm. perspectives and political views. So it's a not great place we're in, dramatically so. We're an educational institution, I say again. We need to figure out ways both to help our amazing young people as they leave this institution and one another um, navigate this polarized space and also, if at all possible, figure out ways to begin to diminish and bring people closer together in meaningful, uh, endurable, sustainable kinds of ways. Um, you know, there's always going to be a Milo. There always has been. You pick the air and we'll give, Dr. Devi and I could give you the name. Yeah. Um, people who are provocative on the left or the right, particularly taking strong positions. Frankly, people who seem to exist to provoke, um, he, he will fade and we won't remember the name in a couple more years, except for those of us who had no history of, say, the Father Coughlin of the 1930s who occupied much the same, same space. Much more important is to help dig into the roots of what's pushing us so far apart, figure out cures for that for the main symptoms, and figure out ways to bridge and connect. I think at Wake Forest, um, we've made great strides in encouraging, enhancing, providing space for bonding of people from different backgrounds, different affinity groups, different experiences and the like. I think we can do a better job and indeed must do a better job of building or at least helping to create bridges um, across people with those different backgrounds. And some of that is the free exchange of ideas in a civil kind of way, and there's lots of other antidotes and, and ways forward, but we've got to find those and emphasize those and advance them, um, or we are doomed. Well said. And with that, uh, thank you both for coming on for the first episode. Do you either of you have anything you'd like to plug or advocate for? Looking forward to future um, editions of this podcast. I love that you're doing it. Congratulations to Sebastian, to the media, um, for inventing this new and I think a vital contributor to the dialogue at Beyond Wake Forest. Yeah, um, thank you for inviting me to um, participate in the inaugural podcast. I'm excited to listen to the other conversations. <laughs>